Father in heaven, we love you and we are grateful for who you are and what you're doing in our church. We pray that you would help us be a place for healing, be a people who love justice and help us be disciples who make disciples, that we can see lives change, not so that we can scratch off a list or, or hit a goal, but Father, so that we can see your kingdom declared and advanced. Use us, Father, make us the vessel that you want us to be. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. All right, so this morning we get to begin a new series, and I, I took the time in those updates to, to kind of present them to you in the form of stories because that actually also helps set the tone for the new series, where we are now going to shift out of the book of Revelation and, and go and focus on a different element of Jesus' ministry and really give greater consideration uh, to the power of story and how Jesus' parables change the world. Right, that, that's really the kind of the, the overarching theme for our, the, uh, the upcoming series that we're starting today, and it gives us a chance to look into the world's greatest storyteller and see why this became one of the main methods of his teaching and, and why it was so integral to him uh, allowing this kingdom to be advanced. And it also supports this kind of overarching theme that we've had for the year, that we wanted to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so we did this by looking at the names of Jesus. We've looked at this by considering the words that Jesus spoke to the churches in Revelation. And now we're going to look at the stories of Jesus. And we're going to look at these various parables. And so we're going to be camped out in Luke for the next several months. And we're going to hit on a huge number of parables. We're not going to necessarily go in order. We'll kind of move around and arrange them to to coincide with certain themes that we want to emphasize throughout the fall. Uh, and it won't necessarily be exhaustive. There may be a couple that we don't necessarily get to, but it will be comprehensive enough to give us an insight to how Jesus so effectively used the power of story in his ministry. And so I really look forward to, to this series. And before we get to one introductory parable this morning to kind of set the tone, I, I really want to first have the conversation about why storytelling is so effective to begin with. Like, why is it so integral to our understanding of information and our, our ability to respond to other people that are storytellers, and how does it work? And so let me just present a few pieces of information to you that you probably are aware of, but probably give a little bit more context to it. The, the first I want us to be mindful of is even just the way that we're created and the way that your brains react when you hear a story. Uh, I found this bit of information in Forbes magazine. It was an article that was written in February of 2020. It was written by Esther Choi, and she references all the research that was done by these neuroscientists who talk about and study how your brains react when they hear a story. Paul Zak is the founding director <clears throat> of the Center for Neuroeconomics Studies at Claremont Graduate University. And what, it, what, what Paul Zak puts in front of us is that essentially when you hear stories, they examine which chemicals are re released in your brain. So if you hear a story of distress... And in, in, in one of those kind of more intense situations, your brain will produce cortisol. And cortisol is the hormone, the chemical reaction that's going to help you focus your attention, which makes sense, right? If you're in a stressful situation, your senses are heightened so that you can know how to navigate through those distressing moments. So when you see drama or some intense story, it, it releases this chemical reaction of cortisol that helps you dial in and increase your focus. In a similar way, Maybe it's not a distressing story or an intense story, but one that really taps into your emotions. When your emotions are tapped into through storytelling, then your brain produces oxytocin. And oxytocin is the chemical or the hormone that is often referred to as kind of this love 
chemical. It's very prevalent, especially with new moms and newborns. When they begin to bond, it's what is very prevalent when you see emotions of empathy and emotion. And so when you find those stories that tap into those emotions, oxytocin gets released in your brain to heighten those feelings. So storytelling literally impacts your brain responses when you hear them. Now, part of what takes place in addition to that, and what I think we all are aware of, is that it also really aids in the process of learning. Harvard Business Review put together an article back in 2017 that hit several different points and referred to several different studies to talk about the effectiveness of storytelling. Here's at least three components that I think we're all aware of but that I would elaborate on for us this morning. The first is that it aids in the process of learning because it really connects to the hearers, right? If you, if you think about an example, and this was referenced in the article, let's say the president of company A stands up and says, congratulations, everybody, we hit our goals for the quarter and cites the different data and the figures that they've hit those goals that would be one way to share that information. But let's say company B has a president that stands up and says, hey, let me tell you a story, and they proceed to explain of a critical moment where their company got that final sale to put them over their benchmark for that quarter, and the different responses that would take place. The people in company A walk away with information, and that's, very, that's pretty much all that they get. Company B, they walk away understanding how it all worked together, how, how this department and this department worked together to achieve their goals. They've learned in the process, and they understand their role within the larger vision. This is what storytelling does. It helps learning. In fact, one of the uh, people that are referenced in this article is a guy by the name of Paul Smith, who's an author and writer uh, that focuses on the role of storytelling and leadership, and he makes this, this observation that storytelling is able to connect to all the different types of learners that are out there. Right? We know there are different categories of learners, right? You have your visual learners, your auditory learners, your kinesthetic learners to kind of name the three dominant groups. Visual learners like to see, auditory pay attention to what is being spoken, kinesthetic likes to do. They learn by experience. So what Paul Smith says is that at any given group, you probably have a breakdown that is roughly 40% visual learners, 40% auditory learners, and about 20% kinesthetic learners. What storytelling does is it can engage with every single learning type. Right? The, the visual learners appreciate the image that the story creates. The auditory learners love to listen to the words and the tone of the storyteller, and the kinesthetic learners respond because of the emotions that they feel from the story. And so storytelling can engage with all types of learners. In addition to that, we know that storytelling is very effective in retaining information. I'll try to remember who it was that, that referenced this one. This comes from a, a psychologist by the name of Jerome Bruners, whose research suggests, I thought this was really compelling, facts are 20 times more likely to be remembered if they're part of a story. So I can get up here and give you statistics and percentages and data all day, but if you weave it into a story, you're 20 times more likely to remember it. I've seen that as a pastor in time and time again, how many times people will remember a story that I've shared but much harder to recall some of the data and the information. The last one that was mentioned in this article talks kind of is kind of a two-pronged thing, but it all points to the same thing, which is that stories elicit action and change. Kendall Haven is the author of Story Proof and Story Smart, and she speaks to the idea that communication is what is going to influence your target audience. Information alone rarely changes people's behavior. Research confirms that well-designed stories are the most effective vehicle for exerting influence. She is complimented by an author by the name of Alan Weiss who also notes that logic uh, makes people think, emotions make them act. At the end of the day, we want to prompt people to do something. 
Logic doesn't necessarily emote. We need emotion to get people off the couch and onto their feet to do something about the message. This is what storytelling does. So factor all that in, church, right? The way that your brains are actually designed to respond to storytelling, the fact that it helps engage all arenas of learning, that it is able to better retain the information, and that it actually elicits change. No wonder it was Jesus' primary method of teaching. No wonder. Right? And so here's my hope. The reason I go to that detail to set the stage for us today is not so that we can go through this series and look at these parables and continue to marvel and study the dynamics of storytelling, but so that when we go look at these parables, it will help teach us who Jesus really was. It will remind us and help us remember who he really was, and it will elicit the sort of change that he desires in our lives. That's why we're studying these parables, and I'm really excited to do it. So why don't you grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 5. We've got a short parable for us this morning uh, that I hopefully, I hope will set the tone for us. When you go to the gospel of Luke, you should know that Luke is more of a historian, right? So he does a lot more groundwork in his writing than the other gospel writers. You look through the first few chapters of the gospel of Luke and you see additional content, especially that was related to uh, John the Baptist and his birth and how his story was Uh, intersecting with Jesus even in the womb. And then you get to the end of chapter three when the birth narrative uh, of Jesus really begins to draw to a a conclusion with a genealogy. So the first three chapters are a lot of groundwork to Jesus' birth. Chapter four is where you start finding some familiar introductions to Jesus' ministry, like him being tempted in the wilderness and a lot of the initial healings that take place in the area. So by the time you get to chapter five, You have a few additional references to some healings that are taking place, but in addition to that, you have the calling of the first disciples. And in the middle of chapter five is the calling of Levi. And it's at the calling of Levi that we find one of the first parables that is mentioned in Luke's gospel. And so we're gonna pick up in chapter five, verse 27. The parable emerges in verse 36, but I wanted us to see the context that leads up to it. So following along in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So they said to him, well, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, can you make the friend, friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. And he told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new one will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. Okay, a lot of things that I want to try to, to hit on in a brief amount of time this morning. The first is that to set the stage Here's Jesus, and he approaches Levi, the tax collector, at his tax collecting booth, and we see the common invitation extended to Levi that he extends to all of his other disciples. Come, follow me. 
And very similar to these other disciples, we see the response is immediate. And Levi gets up at once and leaves everything to follow Jesus. I'm always struck by the immediacy with which people respond to Jesus' invitation and the cost that is associated with them responding to Jesus' invitation. Now, what happens next is somewhat unique. What does Levi do? He throws a party and he has a banquet. And it's not like a retirement party, right? It's not a farewell party, guys. I'm going on a journey. You know what he does? He throws a banquet for Jesus, right? So enamored is he with Jesus that he wants others to know about him. So he has a banquet at his house and he invites these other tax collectors and other people to come and gather with Jesus. And it created a scene, man, and the Pharisees took note. And so they they see this taking place and they come up to the disciples, right? They're they're not really uh, courageous enough at this point in the story to actually talk to Jesus. They come up to the disciples and they begin to ask a question that really kind of sets the theme for Jesus's ministry. Why are you eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors? Really important question. It's a, it's a question that serves as a good reminder to, to us who Jesus spent his time with. Where do we spend ours? Right, it's a good reminder of who Jesus was investing in. Who do we invest in? Right, this was the theme. Why do you spend so much time with sinners and tax collectors? That was the question. Now, we don't know if Jesus um, knew this was the question just because of his ability to perceive what people were thinking or if he just overheard it, but he goes ahead and he gives an answer, right? And he gives some clarity to the situation. And he says, listen, it's not the healthy that need the doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that was a really interesting statement that really challenged the Pharisees' concept of righteousness and sinfulness, because at that point in time, the way that you treated sinfulness was to avoid it, right? The way that you pursued righteousness was to protect yourselves from that which was unclean, that which was unholy, that which was sinful. And Jesus is flipping that mindset on its head, saying, no, actually, righteousness pursues the sinner, doesn't avoid them. And so it was a very interesting statement. It was a paradigm shift, and it created this confusion that led to subsequent questions. And so now the disciples have the courage to actually interact with Jesus one-on-one, and they say, well, can I wait a second? You know, we see John's disciples fasting and praying, as do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours, they go on eating and drinking. Now, what they're asking about here is, is pretty interesting, right? Fasting and praying would have been these indicators of spiritual devotion, right? They were these uh, tangible things that you could observe in other people to, to measure and almost see the level of their spiritual devotion. And so they're, they're using these established parts of their institution, of their current system, to see why does Jesus not fit within this system? But the way they're presenting it is to say, listen, this isn't just us, right? The Pharisees were known to fast twice a week, but this time they're actually invoking John and his disciples as well, right? You know John, he, he blessed you, he baptized you, he prepared the way for you, and even his disciples fast and pray. But yours go on eating and drinking. So essentially what they're saying is, you, what you're doing seems so unorthodox. It's so out of step with the spiritual norms that we have established. Why? What, what is so different? So Jesus gives some really 
really powerful answers. The first thing that he does is he gets them to understand that they've just got the wrong perspective. And he does it with imagery. Not yet the parable, but at least some imagery. And he uses this reference to a bridegroom. Right? He, he says, well, can you convince the friends of a bridegroom to fast while they're at a wedding? While they're with him? So here's, here's essentially what he's saying with that statement. A bridegroom uh, carries the image of a wedding, and a, and a wedding is inherently joyful. A wedding is a place where there's feasting, not fasting. Right? Fasting is a, a process of lament, of intercession, of, of despair. And so he's creating this, this image that seems absolutely ludicrous. You would never fast at a wedding. Right? His point is basically saying that would be like the friends standing at a wedding thinking about the bridegroom's death while they're there to celebrate his marriage. It would never happen. And so his point indirectly is essentially saying to these Pharisees, you think you're at a funeral and you should be at a wedding. You, you totally missed it. This is not a season for lament. This is a season for joy. And so that first serves as a reminder for you and I that when we encounter a relationship with Jesus, it leads us to a spirit of joy, even when things are difficult, as we would later see as the gospel unfolds. Right? But he does go on to offer this clarification, say there will be a time where I will be taken from them, where the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. Now, he may be referring to his arrest and his crucifixion and death in those three days that they lament and they mourn his loss. But I think it also, for us today, allows us to think about what it means to know that we have Jesus and yet still long for his return. Right, that in our lives today, absolutely we should be able to carry that enduring joy in all situations, but we also recognize that we, we want Jesus to return and bring the fullness of his kingdom. And we have moments where we want to offer that prayer, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So there are those, those two dualities at play here, but Jesus kind of sets the tone and he references the first picture here to say, listen, you just don't even really understand. You think you're at a funeral, but you should be at a wedding. And then he goes into the parable. Now, before we look at the parable itself, let me just offer another few uh, introductory comments about parables in nature, right, in terms of how they're utilized in the scriptures. So obviously, parable just means a, a story or an illustration that is designed to teach. And the typical way that it is used is that you use something that is common, like a common truth that is known, to better explain a truth that is unknown, right? So you would take something in ordinary life, like farming, or baking bread to explain something more complex and unknown like the kingdom of God. And so this is what Jesus does. He draws upon all these different images and these different stories, some very simple like a farmer, some more elaborate like a worker in a vineyard. And then he uses them to explain very complex truths that more often than not point to the kingdom of God. Don't lose sight of that. Right? His parables are not there just to offer us words of wisdom proverbial thoughts that get you to think, general truths about life. He is teaching about the kingdom of God, its eminence, how you find it, what you do when you find it, how you're invited into it, how you share it. He's teaching about the nature of God and God's love for people to bring them into the kingdom. Time and time again, that's what these Proverbs are designed to reveal. Now, the other common trait that each proverb tends to carry, or not uh, proverb, but parable tends to carry, is it tends to end either with a direct or implicit form of a question, right? You think about uh, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who was the neighbor? Well, the one who showed him mercy. Well, then go and do likewise. More often than not, parables are used 
by leading to a point where it points the person who is hearing the story to ask themselves a question and to begin to respond. How will I respond to this person that is sharing this story? They often serve as somewhat of a sifting between those who believe Jesus and those who don't. So they're very effective in his teaching tools. And so here's what Jesus does with this parable. Okay, what Jesus does is he doesn't really use this to launch into some elaborate explanation about the role of prayer and fasting in our lives and the way in which we need to understand those sort of spiritual disciplines. What he's really doing is answering the bigger question, which is why do they seem so unorthodox in their approach? They don't fit the mold. He and his disciples, they're not following the typical norm with a rabbi and the disciples would typically see. They're, they're with sinners and tax collectors. They're eating and drinking. They don't fit the mold. Why is that? And Jesus essentially gives them a parable to say, because this is new. You don't take a new garment and rip off a patch to repair an old. Because when you do that, Man, you destroy the new, and it doesn't even look right on the old. This is something new in your midst. He transitions and complements that with the parable of the new wine. You don't take new wine and pour it into old wineskins. As if you do, the old wineskins will burst, the new wine pours onto the ground, and the wineskins are ruined. No, pour new wine into new wineskins. His answer is that this is new. I'm not here to fit your established systems. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Now, you and I have the benefit. We have the benefit of being able to look on the rest of the story and to see where it leads, that it leads to the cross, that it leads to the empty tomb, that it leads to the birth of the church and the bringing in of the Gentiles. We see this new covenant poured out in his blood give birth to this change that sweeps across the world. And that's what he's talking about. They couldn't see it in the moment. They said, this is new. I'm not here to just add to your spiritual disciplines. I'm not here to fit into your antiquated systems. I'm here to do something new. This is new wine. Now, here's what's interesting is the last statement is what really drives the question for the audience that's hearing this parable. Right? What does he say there at the end? He says, but no one after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. Now, what he's not doing here is contradicting himself. He's not saying, hey, I'm coming to bring a bunch of new stuff, but trust me, the old way is a lot better. Right? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying with this statement is he's giving a reason for why they're even asking the question to begin with. Right? He's putting it back on them. He's, he's highlighting why they don't understand what's taking place. Essentially, what he's pointing to is that there are going to be people who drink deep of the wine of the old system and they don't want what's new. And so he's asking them very indirectly, very subliminally, what are you looking for? Are you clinging to old antiquated structures and systems and ideas of what God is and who he's gonna call me to be and what the Messiah should be? Are you, are you clinging to these old established institutions and spiritual disciplines or are you looking for new wine? What about you? What are you looking for? See, that, that to me became the important part of this parable, is for us to give greater consideration to how we, like the Pharisees in this particular moment, can often try to fit Jesus into old, antiquated systems, 
or mindsets? And I think that's really the question we need to ask ourselves this morning. Right? What, what do we typically think of? Are, are there things that we have in place, systems, ideas, expectations, mindsets, that are hindering our ability to receive the new wine that Jesus brings, this new power, this new freedom, this kingdom. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we could point to a lot of different things. Here's, here's where it led me. Um, and, it, and I guess the way that I would try to point it is to start with kind of just this American mindset that we find in our country and in our culture in particular. It's, it's an interesting mindset that really kind of allows this interesting juxtaposition of us both wanting to cling to that which is old and familiar and that also we in our culture have this obsession with that which is new, right? So, so if you think about it, there are moments for sure where we find ourselves clinging to the old way. We want to cling to that which is comfortable, that which is familiar, that which is traditional, and we're hesitant and resistant to change. But then we also, as a country and as Americans, have this obsession with innovation, with that which is new. I mean, think about even the way our country was founded, right? People came over here to discover the new world, and they established colonies, and that became part of the ethos of our whole existence, right? You could come and settle into a town, if you didn't like what was established, if you didn't like what was put in place, and guess what you could do? You could move, and you could start a new town. Everything was new, and we developed these colonies, and eventually we got to the point where we said, we don't like this established rule, we don't like this established order of things with Britain, we want a new country, a new nation, a new constitution, we want a new identity, and so innovation led to the birth of our nation. And you could just continue to expand. We got new territory. We moved out west. And over time and through the centuries, we became a country that was obsessed with innovation. Right? And so now we've got the development of all sorts of crazy technology. We've got iPads and touchscreens and startups galore. We love discovering that which is new. And so we have this interesting dichotomy as a culture where we simultaneously at times love that which is old, and are obsessed with that which is new, and that is especially prevalent in the church. In fact, I would be willing to argue that throughout most of American Christianity, you could divide us into one of those two mindsets. Right, we got some folks in the American Christian experience that are clinging and holding on for dear life to that which is old. Traditions systems that we know and that we find are comfortable. And at the same token, we have an army of people that are obsessed with innovation. And now we're going to do something new in this church, reacting against the generations that came before them. Now it's really going to be different. Now it's really going to be edgy and things that we've never seen before. We're going to try to innovate and innovate and innovate. We see both of it. Now how does it typically manifest itself? Let me try to to point it to you in some practicality, tends to kind of start with an obsession with, let's start with a building. This is one of the ingredients, right? So for the folks that cling to an older way, they want tradition when they step into a building. We want to see pews. We want to see cathedrals. We want to see stained glass. We want to see that which is somewhat traditional and some, some sort of old type of heritage, and then we get the innovators out there and they're like, no, we're going to react against that, man. We're going to do church somewhere new, somewhere it's never been done before. We're going to go to movie theaters. We're going to go to auditoriums. We're going to go to bars. And we're like, it's going to be new, man. It's going to be church. But here's the reality. It's all the same. It's a building. And so we, we figure out what kind of building we want. And then what do we do? We think, okay, well, how do we fill it? 
And then the real question is about people. What kind of people are going to be there? And there was a time in American Christianity where we wanted to find people that looked like us, thought like us, talked like us, acted like us, believed like us. It was homogenous. But now the newer way of thinking is, no, man, diversity is the way. It needs to be filled with this mixture of people and all these different things. And listen, you have all these different pros and cons to either side, but it really fundamentally is the same. We're trying to have buildings that are filled with people. So then we start thinking about the content, the content of what takes place within those buildings to bring those people in. And so we look at the preaching. Man, is it old school preaching? Is it the way it's supposed to be, expositional? Are we going to have an altar call? Are we going to have all the things that I'm used to? No, it's going to be a new preacher. He's edgy. I can't believe he said that in church. That's so crazy. That's innovative. I'm going to go listen to him. The music. Oh, my, do we talk about music. Is it going to have organ? Is it going to have choir? Is it going to have hymnals? No, man, it's going to be modern. New lyrics, new things, new ways to do it. At the end of the day, all we're really trying to do is create a building that can be filled with people. And I'll be honest, all of it is getting old. It feels like a system we're trying to fit Jesus in. And in moments, it feels like a hindrance to the new wine and the new power and the new freedom he offers. It can serve as a hindrance for us to truly see the kingdom. So let me ask you, what is the kingdom of God to you? What does it mean to follow this gospel? When we say we want to see the power of God unleashed, what are we talking about? Are we just trying to fill a building? He's trying to be the next trendy church. We're trying to reclaim glory days of the past. What are we talking about? What is the kingdom of God to you? What does it look like? The way we understand the identity of the kingdom is to look to the king. And Jesus brings something completely different to the conversation. Was he a great storyteller that taught on ethics and morality? Yes. Did he rebel against cultural norms in the day? Absolutely. Did he come with power and miracles and all those things? Yes. But ultimately, Jesus goes to the cross and dies and comes to life three days later. What this kingdom is really about is that sin and death don't win. Do you believe that? Like, do you believe it in your heart of hearts with everything that you are? That's the kingdom of God. To live your life with such confidence and boldness and courage to understand that no matter what you face, no matter the challenge, no matter the difficulty, no matter how good or bad, sin and death don't win. That's the kingdom that we're a part of. That's the new wine that comes and brings new power and new freedom, and it's here. Do you believe it? Is that the road that you're traveling? So there was a man whose office was about five miles from work, from his office. And so every day he took the same route home. Right? He, knew, he knew the path. He would drive by the same stores, the same homes, day after day, taking the same streets. 
It was familiar, it was comfortable. It was almost to a certain point um, an art, like a science almost. He knew exactly what time he could leave and how long it would take him. Took the same road. Now throughout his career, the cars changed. Right, he'd get these new cars with the new technology that would allow him to take that route with greater convenience and comfort. He got those new cars, people would turn and they would notice. Went through a phase even where he, he really kind of wanted to go vintage, got the old Ford Mustang and enjoyed those sorts of things as well. So throughout the years, his car changed, but the route remained the same. And now, as he would drive home, his taste in music changed throughout his career as well. Right? There were all sorts of different genres of music that he listened to. Rock turned to country, country turned to blues. He had times where he was obsessed with the classics, times where he was obsessed with the latest hits. Even got into podcasts, started listening to true crime and history tellers and Wondery and audible books. And so throughout his career, the sounds that accompanied him in his car changed, but the route remained the same. The conversations he had in the car changed. He often would use that time and that space to make phone calls, check in with people, friends that were old and new, family members. And throughout his career, those conversations changed. Friends would move away, some people passed away. Some relationships grew distant, some grew closer. So throughout his career and those rides home, conversations changed, but the route remained the same. And then one day, something remarkable happened. People don't really know what caused it. Some have given a, a suggestion or a rumor that he was trying to swerve from a dog that ran out in the street. Others think that maybe there was a road closure that kept the normal road closed from him to take that normal route. Others have said it hasn't, wasn't any extenuating circumstance. It was just his own heart, his own mind that finally gave in to some adventuresome spirit. But whatever it was on that day, he took a different road. On that day, the route changed. That was a road that was always there, as old as the city itself. He knew exactly where it was, knew the name of it, but had never really thought to take it before because he had a route. He had a routine. Why change it? It was comfortable. It was convenient. Not to mention the fact that that road seemed to be rough and rugged and very few people actually took it. But on this day, for whatever reason, he drove down that road. It was more difficult than he anticipated. The pavement quickly gave way to Broken gravel, the twists and turns were much more precarious than he thought, and the overhanging trees prevented a line of sight where he didn't really even know where he was going. There were moments where he wanted to change course, moments where he thought this was a mistake, I should go back to what I know. But he kept on through those twists and turns and up that incline until finally that incline led to a clearing. This beautiful clearing where you could see nothing but wide open sky. And it just so happened that at the time of day that he left his office was the perfect time to arrive at that clearing and see this beautiful sunset illuminating the city below. Perspective he had never had. And it was like this precious discovery that only belonged to him. And from that day forward, he never took the old road. He took this one instead. He told others about it, had them even ride along with him just so he could take them up and see that clearing so that they too could experience 
the joy of taking all of that in. This became his new route. It was absolutely longer. It took more time. It was harder to drive. But every time he got to stand in that spot and see the power of the sun illuminating the city, the freedom of taking in that view, he knew that driving that road was worth it. So let me ask you, church, which road are you traveling down? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we pray that you would guide our steps, guide our hearts, guide our minds. God, help us to truly embrace the power and the new wine of the kingdom that helps us see the fullness of your power, the fullness of your freedom. God, if there are things in our lives that we're trying to fit you into, old, antiquated approaches, God, help us to surrender those things and repent of them and once again discover what it means to truly taste and see the fullness of your kingdom, to know, God, deep within our hearts that sin and death don't win. Father, that we have an opportunity to follow a King of kings and a Lord of lords who conquers over death. And so, Father, with that in mind, mold us, shape us, Make us the vessel that you want us to be. Give us the courage to travel down the roads that you lead us. Give us the glimpse of this kingdom. Help us invite others along that you would receive the glory and the praise and the honor. We love you, Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.